you're at zero, we need to start with your own primary home. How do you even know that you like real estate? You might hate it. Let's start with your own home first. And the first time you have to like fix the garbage disposal or the toilet, you'll learn real quick if you want to be into real estate or not. Okay, because then that becomes like a full-time thing. So absolutely the best place I want you to start at if you're going from zero is to start on your own primary home. It gives you the best interest rate, the lowest down payment, the best terms. We can start there and then move on. There's plenty of people who just buy primary home every year, primary home to primary home to primary home, and then they rent out their previous homes. That's kind of how I started. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, today we have on Andrew Postel, and we're talking about a 20-year real estate investor, top 1% loan originator in the U.S. for Fannie Freddie loans and for some investment loans, and a guy who likes country music and someone who's going to give us some great insight because he was investing successfully in the last crash and even in 9-11. So without further ado, Andrew, if you'll take us in, what is your craziest real estate experience you've had so far? Thanks, Matt. I appreciate being here. It's a terrific honor for me to be here. Yeah, lots of crazy stories. At this point in my career, I've got lots of properties and the stories are endless, right? If you don't like crazy stories, don't get into real estate. <laughs> right. But we get into real estate for the end game. Part of this is that we're going to come across craziness. So I think, especially right now, the most pertinent story I can share is the property that I purchased in 2008. If you remember what 2008 was, this is right when the housing crisis started to occur. So my wife and I, we went and toured a, a neighborhood back in 2007, the year before, looked at the homes. They were nice, but we decided to pass. Well, a year later, the builder calls us. Hey, financing fell through on a property. Would you like to purchase it? Now, the year before, they were selling these homes for 175000 And they were like, hey, we'll give it to you for one thirty-five. My wife and I, had the exact discussion of, well, we know prices have gone down, but they probably won't go down much more from here, right? And we bought the property. Now, we used to negotiate. We bought it for 132 Zero down. Zero down at a 7% interest rate. So did we cash flow on this property? No. We bought it for 100% of the value of the property, which you're not supposed to do. <laughs> and the property value plummeted. And not just like over the next several months. For five years, we were crushed every year on values going down. At the lowest point, it was worth 79 grand. So if you can think about this, there was no way to refinance. There was no way to sell. You either had to take your foreclosure, which was not going to be an option for us, or just write it out, which is what we did. And on that home that we bought at the worst possible place, on the worst kind of loan, at the worst loan to value, we still own it to this day, Matt still own it. We never lost money on that home. And we will sell it this year. And if I take a 14 or 15 year average of my appreciation, even during the times where it went down, I average 5% appreciation on that home. And that's the numbers I use today whenever I analyze a deal, 5% appreciation. So it taught me a lot of good lessons. Yeah, which is interesting. So so you could argue, okay, the worst point in that market to buy in would have been when that house was selling at 175, yeah. right? Correct. And so but even so you didn't buy at the perfect top, but you bought close enough and you still average 5%. So the message here is 
even if you get it at the wrong time, right? Like time, if you look at it at a de decent enough horizon, you're going to win. So you get the 5%, mm -hmm. but at some point you probably started to cash flow. How long in the game was it before you were cash flowing on that property? Matt, I don't cash flow on it today. Whoa. I still don't cash flow on that property. And then here, so here's, all right, I, I'm, I want to be sensitive of what I'm about to say, because it might be a little bit uh, different. Yeah, let's call yeah. It. Back in the day, we never talked about cash flow, man. Oh. We didn't. There was no opportunity to cash flow at 8% and 7%. You, if you wanted to be a full-time investor that made money on a, like a daily basis, or year, you had to flip. Buying and holding was a long-term plan. You went into it knowing that you were probably going to give up 50 bucks a month. Now, the payoff was $100,000. So I'm going to set aside 50 bucks a month to get 100000 Of course, I'm going to do that. I got a plan on that. Only recently has cash flow even been a discussion because rates went in a certain direction. But only in the past five, six, seven, eight years has this been an active strategy. I still don't cash flow on that home today. That's so and I'm interesting. Totally fine with it. Because you, you look at guys like Brandon Turner, who was a big part of Bigger Pockets for a long time, and he was so happy back in 2009 to buy deals that were $100 a unit in cash flow. You know, and it's like now we laugh, right? I mean, with all of the rental income strategies like Airbnb, midterm rentals, the interest rates, like people are buying properties with a thousand, a three thousand, a ten thousand dollars a month of cash flow. So having lived in the 2008, 2009 world, what do you see? the future looking like? Do you think it's a return to cash flow is not much in the conversation? What do you see moving forward? Yeah, old strategies are the new strategies. So previously, we would call expired listings. Expired listings. We haven't had expired listings in what, three or four years? Nobody's listings has been expired, but they are now. So all of these older strategies that we were using to be successful, we're gonna start using those more. You can still make money. Absolutely, right now you can still make money but you got to do it in an old fashioned approach. Walk me through the expired listings. That, that is like near and dear to my heart. That's how I, as an agent, I generated my income that way back oh, yeah. in 2015 yeah. where there was a yeah. moderate supply, but you're probably talking about doing this as an investment strategy, right? So mm -hmm. walk us through, what, mm -hmm. is, what does that call look like? What's the approach? Yeah, okay, so the most popular day for a listing to expire, December 31st. 100%. Every year is the best day. So when do you want to call people? Either December 31st or January the 1st. Dude, hallelujah. So yeah. We would have and call right. parties on January 1st. 300. That's right, yeah. man. Yep. If, if you're a real estate agent, you know the strategy, at least if you're a real estate agent from previous years, because you weren't doing this last year or the year before. It, you know, these. this is an older strategy. So what our call is as an investor is, hey, Mr. Seller, I saw your house didn't sell, I can give you an all-cash offer for this property. And you lowball it. And that's how you, you work with the MLS and expired listings. We can now do that strategy today. So you're talking about, okay, so let's say the value of the house is roughly 300000 This mm -hmm. person expired, so they're listed at 330 The market's moving downwards. So the current oh, value yeah. of 300 you're probably factoring 250 and then you're offering seven, going lower, right? Yeah, you're offering yeah. 180, right? So yeah, they're, yeah. you're trying to get them from 330 down to 180. So talk about this and in, in the sort of sales sort of way. What sort of beating and numbers do, does the person have to put up to be able to start locking these deals down that way? I make a hundred offers a year, hundred, and I do two. I do two. 
I have a regular job, okay? So I have a regular full-time W-2 job. I'm a loan officer. I'm one of the top loan officers in the whole country. It is a full-time gig. I make 100 offers a year to do two. And just by doing two, Matt, each year, uh, it sounds weird, but I'm a, I'm a millionaire. Yeah. But I got to make the offers. And like clockwork, I'm doing eight to 10 every month. So, so let's talk about, because 100 offers is not really the starting point, right? It's, it's the evaluation of the expired listings. It's the selection of the offers that you make. How much vetting goes into the choosing of which 100 offers you're going to make? Oh, oh, okay. So very little, honestly, very little. All I'm doing is I'm looking at the median price point in my city. My city is 380. And I go below that, well below that on a three-bedroom, two-bath home. So I start full value at 300. That's the max. If it's three-bedroom, two-bath, anything under that, I'm making a 50% offer on. Yeah, just straight 50%. That's it. Three bedroom, two bath. And it's not much more complicated than that. I don't need the garage. We're in Texas. We don't need garages like we do up north. We don't even need carports here. This, you know, can't do carports up north because the snow would collapse a carport. Here, they're a thing, but you don't have to have it. Three bedroom, two bath, and that's a long-term rental. So so let's talk about when you say 50%, 50% of that property's value or 50% of the median price? Oh, no, of that property's value. Perfect. Okay, cool. And so you're just... I mean, you're only calculating a hundred. So when you're talking about, you're probably talking about making a hundred thousand dollars per property. Does that like, how do you factor your buying criteria? Oh yeah, yeah. So remember, I'm a buy and hold person. Oh, I do not flip. I do not. All I care about how much money am I coming out on this transaction, and I want it to be as close to zero as possible. So part of my math is that I know what my buy lender will give me. And I know what my refinance lender will give me. So I do the Burr method. Burr. Mm-hmm. And because I know these metrics, I know that I need to buy and rehab at 75% of the value. And I can refinance at 80. And that way I can roll in my closing costs and fit everything. And maybe I come out of pocket a couple of grand. Have I come out of pocket 12000 on property? Sure. At this point in my career, I can afford that. Early on, I could not. So early on, I had to be much more aggressive and much more stringent on my offer. Um, but that's how I analyze the deals. How much do I come out of pocket? Yep. So every year you're thinking, my strategy is I keep working my job. If you're a top 1% lender, you're killing it with income, but you're still buying two properties a year with no money coming out of pocket in the end. And so cash flow is not really that much of a concern because, hey, I'm picking up a $300,000 property, two of them. So in time, I'm building 600K a year of future net worth, not accounting the appreciation. I'm building 600K a year of net worth without using my own money. So then how do you, how do you start? I mean, this starts to snowball, like absolutely starts to snowball. Yeah. So yeah. when you're talking about making a 1% loan originator, you're making some cheddar. What are you doing with that cheddar? Are you just putting in 401ks? You buying additional units? How are you building your wealth? Yeah. Okay. So keep in mind, so I've been doing real estate for 20 years. Yeah. So the first 10 years of it, Matt, man, I was, I was in the dark. Yep. I didn't know what I was doing. I, you know, the, the internet was barely a thing. Yep. There certainly weren't podcasts. So I was just wandering in the wilderness. The moment that I got better is when I went and visited a local real estate group in my market and went there in person. People were talking about doing the same things I, I was doing. And I was like, oh, you're doing that? Well, how are you doing it? And I started learning. And then the light bulbs were going off. Oh, that's how value comes into the formula with my re. And so then I got better. Then I got better. So like around year 14 or 15 is when I started really getting good. 
So in the beginning, and plus I haven't been a one percent loan officer all my life. Yeah. I've been that the past several years, so I'm doing just fine. So mostly it's going to like loud music, yep. travel. Yep. But real estate is my investment. It is for long term, and it's great to be there. I don't get me wrong. I have crypto. I've got 401k. I've got you know, I have all of those things. But far and away, most of my investment time is in real estate because it gives me the best benefits, tax deductions, everything. It's so amazing. It is absolutely. Obviously, we're both real estate guys, so we're wildly biased, but but I wouldn't put my majority of my money anywhere else. But I love the fact that yeah. you're diversifying. Let's let's move a little bit, if you're willing, in the personal. Like I love, because we're the Freedom Chasers podcast, so the point for us is not just doing real estate to, to amass a portfolio of a bazillion properties. It's what can we do with our freedom? So, so tell me, what are some of the lifestyle benefits you've gotten out of, out of the success you've had? Yeah, man. I, could ne I never thought I would be here. Never thought I'd be here. So I'll start from the end. I've already contributed six figures to my university, right? When I die, they're going to get a big check. Everybody in my family will get a house when I pass. Hmm. Everybody's going to be taken care of. And I'm going to live on my properties for the rest of my life too. So when you start seeing what it feels like to make real money, it's almost undescribable. You're like, wow, now I know what it feels like to be rich. You get this taste. Now, there's always somebody more wealthy For than sure. you are. Yeah. But once you get to the point where you don't worry about bills and you don't go to sleep stressed because of your job, like I choose my job. I am in this career because I enjoy it. I, as a loan officer, I get to see other people's tax returns too. There are plenty of people who work a $50,000, $60,000 a year job, have several rental properties, and are very happy. Real estate allows them to work those types of jobs to be happy. And there's this, there's this ethereal thing that occurs that's undescribable. Happiness, you know, <laughs> bliss. Yeah. It, you know, after these needs are, are taken care of, now I can do the things that, uh, that you personally have, that maybe I don't personally have. It's, it's like a personal thing, but now those goals can be reached, and it's kind of weird. And you get a little guilty about it, too especially when some of your friends aren't doing so well. Um, so sometimes it can be lonely also, um, but you still, I have a good network of other real estate investors. Specifically, we have a good group here in town. We go have barbecue once a month just to hang out. We're all like-minded. We all are very successful. And so you do surround yourself with these people, but even around your other regular family and friends, you're just, I'm sensitive to how they feel and sometimes guilt does sit in. Yeah. It's a really interesting thing. As we get more specialized in our lives, it's, it starts to shift how we interact with people. What, what are some of the ways that you like think about like pursuit of happiness? Like what are some of the ways that maybe your view of happiness has shifted as you become, you know, more in the game? Yeah. Once. Okay. So I have, I have people who approach me this, Andrew, I want to get into real estate because you know, uh, I hate my job. I've got terrible credit. My family's dysfunctional. All these things are going on. Well, time out. Hold on. If you get wealthy, your family might be more dysfunctional. Right. Wealth doesn't just solve these things. It might complicate them more. So we got to start here mm. and here. You know, these are things that need to be worked on too. You know, all of these things like your credit. Your credit is a test. If you can't manage five or six bills, how are you going to manage 5,000 bills? And that does happen as you get more wealthy. Being wealthy, it's hard. Your calendar is booked. You're always scheduled. Well, boo-hoo. But guess what else is hard? 
being poor. So if poor is hard and rich is hard, choose your hard. Yeah. Just choose the right one that's built for you. It, you might be okay at the end of it. Yeah. I hope that makes sense how I'm describing it. One hundred percent. And and like you said, there's challenges either way. Um, mm -hmm. So let's dive deeper into that concept. So we're talking about like the difficulty of wealth, maybe the burden of wealth. What are what are some of the things that you've had to get right in your life so that as your wealth accumulates, it doesn't become a hindrance to you? Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that my wife and I did when we got married, we decided early on before we got married, all of our bills are separate. All of our bank accounts are separate. Everything is separate. She's a career person. I'm a career person. So whatever she wants to do with her money, that's her choice. And plus our incomes do fluctuate from month to month. And we just say, hey, whatever your income proportionally, that's what how much you pay the bill. So some days, some weeks I pay 30%, some months she pays 50%, some months I pay, you know, so it's all it's continually changing, but we don't see each other's bills or bank accounts as long as we cover the bills. So Matt, I come home, hey babe, I bought a house today. Cool. <laughs> There's no warning. That's a very special relationship. Now, as I became more and more uh, successful in real estate, I was like, hey, babe, let's get into real, let's do a house together. She wanted nothing to do yep. with that, nothing. So what I've been doing, I hope she doesn't mind me saying it, but we're selling a house this year. And when we sell a house this year, we're going to buy two. I say we. I'm going to give her the money hmm. to go buy two. Hmm. And then that's my plan to get her more involved in the real estate thing. Because don't get me wrong, she's still very fine at what she does. She's very successful, has good retirement plan. She's fine. But real estate transformed me, and I want her to see that and realize it. So it's allowed me to get her more involved too, and I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. How cool. So my mom had a, a period of time too where, where she had the bills separate. And like, at first it seems so foreign to me. I'm like, why would you do that? And then you see like, it works really, really well for some couples, like really, really for well. Some people. And some people that don't have them split would probably do a lot better to have them split. So I, I would ask the question, how do you guys think about like children, if you're going to have children or where the money goes? And if you don't have children, maybe you just each decide how you're going to will it away. But like, how do you decide how the money goes after you're gone? Yeah, so we do not have children. Under the grace of God, we don't have children. We decided early on it was not for us. Mm. And that's why this plan kind of works. Because yeah. if we did have children, we'd have to address it differently. So yeah. everybody's different. I don't want this to turn into a comparison oh, sure. or a competition yes. or a race. This is just a story. So don't anybody take it for uh, take it at what, it's, what it is. It's just on the surface. So I have a plan after I am gone. She does not. And she's a little younger than me too. Um, so I have planned and she has not, we're working on those things. She's much more of a free spirit yeah. than I am, which makes me attracted to her. Right? She's got a great personality. Yeah. And just super funny, wonderful. Everybody loves her. And anybody invites me out, Hey, bring your wife. Of course, yeah. you know, she's the, she's the party. I'm not. Yeah. Um, but part of her personality is that she just doesn't have uh, end of life stuff planned. Yeah. We'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. Love it. Yeah. I, I just love hearing these stories because I love how people do life differently. So what would you say have been the biggest benefits of you do life together, 
but yet there's elements of life that are separate. Like, but what has been the huge, like if you were to list out top three, this is why this is so good. What would those be? Yeah. So, so our, our needs aren't that really, they're not complicated. We want time together and, um, and, and time apart. We want both of those. So every year she vacations with her sister and her mom and her, like without me, they go off in vacation. And then I take some of my friends, we go off in vacation. So what it has allowed us to do is be financially independent, even of each other, even of each other. So we, we continue to grow in this world. You know, we're in a modern world where we have two working individuals in a marriage. Our, my parents didn't have that. Mm-hmm. I can't go to them and ask for them for advice. Their parents didn't have that. I mean, if you look at the history of dating, I mean, people still get arranged marriages. So what we are wrestling with now in this time as people who are professionally oriented, who are getting together in marriage, we're in uncharted territory as a relationship. Nobody on the planet has done what we are doing. And some of us are learning as we go. And that's what we're doing too. We're figuring out that the money has helped us grow apart and be together and be successful and be independent and love each other better. That's the best way I can describe it. Yeah. And you can see your true concern and care for her because you obviously have a desire to do this real estate thing with her. And so because of your success, you're able to bring her in and encourage her that way, which is cool because that kind of avoids the fight that could happen of like, I want to buy a house, but she doesn't want to. So maybe in a marriage where you you know, did the money together, maybe that first house would have never been bought or there would have been some disagreements over how that went. So um, tell me about like, what do you view your future? I mean, like you're on such a pace, like, and you're young. How do you view the future? Yeah. So real estate is one of those things where there are definitely ups and downs, risks to it. But I'm at the point in the career now where I'm selling two properties per year to buy four. So I have enough equity when I buy a property because I'm buying it really cheap, right? I keep it for five years. Brandon Turner taught me this. Yeah. I keep it for five years. Around five, the fifth year, I usually have about a hundred to one hundred twenty thousand dollars of profit. Like I sell it, I pay off the commissions, the real estate agents. I still net about one hundred twenty out of that, and I go buy two properties by selling one. So I'll be doing this for the next four years or so, and then I'll be selling four to buy eight. And then I'll be selling eight to buy 16. Like it's kind of crazy, but it was very hard in the beginning. Okay, the beginning part of it, Matt, was hard, the hardest. So buying one was the hardest part of it. But once you get your standard operating procedure in place, you just keep doing the same technique. Uh, it's not a get rich quick thing, right? You're not going to get rich quick doing what I'm doing, but you get rich. Yeah. And that's good enough. Yeah. You get rich, like basically not, nothing's ever guaranteed, but it's, 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 the strategy is foolproof, right? Because you're buying these things at such discounts. You're going in with the long-term game plan of five-year holds. So even mm -hmm. if you buy at the wrong time, you've got the five-year cycle. What would you say, cause you're in the money game. So you're originating loans, you're originating loans to investors. What would you say is the mentality and the thought processes people should have around financing their deals and getting the money? Oh, oh. So Matt, the very first thing, the most important piece of this is having the right lender. 
the right lender usually comes from another investor who has worked with that lender before and who can make a recommendation to you. And I appreciate how anybody earns business, but if I'm the first time working with that person, how do I know if they're any good? I don't even know what loan to value is good or not. So I need to lean on other investors to get me attached to the right lender first. Now, most lenders, Matt, don't do investment properties. I'm an exception to what this is. So investment properties are lower valued, lower loans, they're more complicated. The buyers usually have like five or six companies. Who wants to do that? Nobody. Nobody wants to do that. We are all taught as a loan officer. This is what I'm taught. Go after half million dollar primary home W-2 employees. And that's why I don't do it, man, because everybody can go get that. You can go if – you, if you're that, you can go get a loan anywhere. It's really hard to find people like me, and the only way you really you can find me as a loan officer is if you go to some other real estate investor to find me. If you can, there's somebody out there who can teach you how to structure your deal, will show you the numbers up front so you know how to make an offer, and then execute when it comes time. That's the critical piece of it. Banks do want to make money, and they can make money on investment properties. You just need to work with somebody that knows what they're doing. What's your strategy? What's your secret to becoming a top one percent loan originator? Oh, uh, so there's a lot of a lot of it. It's a definitely a, a long term thing too, right? But in the beginning, um, when I bought my first home, I was not a loan officer yet. So I bought my first home. Thankfully, people were looking out for me. I closed at the eight. It was an eight percent interest rate. Um, I bought my second home. Luckily, somebody was looking out for me. About the fourth or fifth home I purchased, I went to the bank and I said, hey, I want to buy this amount of a property. And the bank goes, hey, well, you can afford more. I was like, well, I know, but I, this is what I want. No, no, no. You can afford like five times that amount. I was like, I don't care. And what it was at the time, man, this was right when the housing crisis before – this was like 05, 06. Yeah, they were going to teach me – how to buy some crazy property with some crazy loan that never would have worked and would have crushed me. So in the beginning, when I became a loan officer and learned that I can actually help investors with this, I was like, all right, we're going to start with education first. And my education, I need to learn this better than anybody else knows. I've had to change companies from time to time, and I go and I teach the underwriters, here's what I need from you. Like, oh, can we do that? Yes, Fannie Freddie say it's okay. And then once the company's good, I then go to the investors and say, hey, here's what you should do. Educate and care for them in a great way because these are clients that can't go anywhere. If you're buying a $50,000 investment property, no bank wants to lend you a loan. But that $50,000 property for that person, that's the only property they can afford. Man, that's going to catapult them out of poverty, out of being poor. That's what we should be focused on as a lender. But it doesn't make financial sense to do it. So I've just tried really hard in my career to go after people who are underserved, and it's paid off. It's paid off because while the paycheck on that particular deal is not there, then obviously you're hitting a huge market of people that know each other that it's the referrals start rolling in. Yeah, and there were repeat clients too. So, all right, I just sold a $100,000 home, $100,000 loan. He came back four or five times. 
it still works out to the half million dollar thing that you know you want me to go after mr bank you know i can still make those metrics work i'm just doing it in a different way what what do the minimum loans look like let's talk about dscr let's talk about fannie oh. freddie <laughs> fannie freddie's 50,000 generally is what i what i remember dscr are they doing 50,000 dollar loans like what what is the minimum someone can get into these investments and start the strategy you're talking about okay i'm going to let the cat out of the bag right here Fannie Freddie does not have a loan minimum. They have no loan minimum. Now, as a bank, I don't make much money on a property that's seventy-five thousand. I'm lending fifty grand. It's just I can't make that work, especially if I'm publicly traded. If I'm publicly traded and I'm doing that, my shareholders will see it and my shares will go down. They have rights too. This is why we don't work with very large publicly traded banks. But I work for a place that has no loan minimum. I did a $22,000 mortgage. It's like a car. Do we make any money on that? No, but we make money on all these other things that make it possible to make money on that. Now, when it comes to DSCR and portfolio loans, it's really hard for anybody to do that type of a, a loan amount because now that's not Fannie Freddie money anymore. That's my own personal money as a lender. And I got to be really careful with that. Once I lend that out, I don't get it back. With Fannie Freddie, I just keep replenishing because I resell the loan to them. They give it, you know, so it's almost unlimited money in a way. But on my portfolio stuff, where it comes to my own portfolio of money, I've got to be really careful as a lender. And that's why loan minimums even exist. That's why it's really hard to find homes at that price point. It is possible though, man. Usually, the, the thing I would tell you, if I can move my checking and savings account to a small local lender like a community-based bank in my area, they will give me exceptions on my loans, on my mortgages, because I might be an important client. If I go to a large company and say, hey, I've got $100,000 of checking savings, they don't care. A billion-dollar bank doesn't care about your hundred grand, but to a small local community bank, that might be their week. That might you might be like the very special client. So they might make exceptions for me. Obviously, I want you to talk to them before you move anything, but that might be a good way for some people to get more mortgages than they were before. Yeah, totally. And this is a really good strategy because like you said, I mean, if they're if they're going low dollar amount, when they get those from those small credit unions or wherever they go, the, the terms are going to be a lot better, typically a lot more flexible, renegotiable most often. So what would you say, if, if I were a new investor, what would mm -hmm. be the best things you could teach me, the best strategies to go from zero to financial freedom? Oh, if you're at zero, we need to start with your own primary home. How do you even know that you like real estate? You might hate it. Let's start with your own home first. And the first time you have to like fix the garbage disposal or the toilet... <laughs> You'll learn real quick if you want to be into real estate or not, okay? Because then that becomes like a full-time thing. So absolutely the best place I want you to start at if you're going from zero is to start on your own primary home. It gives you the best interest rate, the lowest down payment, the best terms. We can start there and then move on. There's plenty of people who just buy primary home every year, primary home to primary home to primary home, and then they rent out their previous homes. That's kind of how I started, and I worked out just fine. Awesome. So where do you see yourself 12 to 18 months from now? Yeah, I'm hoping that the economy is a little different. We're going to be in a tough place, at least from a lending perspective, for the next six to nine months. And that's fine. Being in a tough space for lenders is 
fine. Nobody should be complaining. We made so much money over the past couple years. We deserve to take a break for a little bit. But what it does allow us to do as an investor is get good deals. Right now, there's no buyers. It means there's no competition. If you come up with somebody that's needing to sell their home, has it on the market, you can now negotiate in a strong position. I am doing everything I can to buy more than two properties a year this year because of all the deals I'm seeing come through. Man, you should see some of the deals I'm seeing on, on these contracts. People buying off the MLS, like a home, a market listed on the MLS. They got it from the – it's 80000 under appraisal? You got an $80,000 equity position on your property from the MLS? That's got me excited. Love it. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Andrew, for sharing your knowledge, your stories, all your successes, and even a bit about your personal life. So guys, if those of you are out there listening, he's given us advice on how to get started. He's given us advice on how to scale a portfolio, doubling it every five years. He's given us advice on how to get to get prices much lower through, through expires. There's so many things you could write down, but write one thing down, tell somebody you know, share it with them so they can hold you accountable because freedom is acquired one action at a time. And as you take these actions, before you know it, you'll be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.